not only a great song, but a word from the Lord for all of us. Rest in the bow with me. Since I may be leaving shortly after service, not too shortly, but fairly shortly, I want to make some announcements off the top. And first of all, and I've done this before, but I need to do it again. Pam and I and my sister's family want to thank all of you, all of you, because I know all of you are sharing as I share with you in your adversities, all of the expressions of kindness, generosity, and sympathy, all for the recent loss of our mom and because of Christmas and another embarrassing event that recently happened on Wednesday. And I'm going to suspend all embarrassments of birthday people from now on because you really got me back. And... If you don't, if you weren't here Wednesday, it's I think it's preserved and on uh, the MP3s and uh, my deep embarrassment. So I'm going to suspend that for 2018. It's my resolution, but I never keep resolutions because Ralph Anderson's birthday is Wednesday. But uh, <clears throat> and I'm sure that you won't embarrass him at all. No, but you're, we don't have time really to craft, and we wish we could, individual thank yous for all that you've done, all that you've given, all that you've said and written, because we have to uh, get down to Florida. And I do ask for your prayers. I'm going to be speaking, I think, they gave me five minutes at the mass that my mom requested at St. Joseph's Parish, and... That'll be, of all the thousands of messages I ever proclaimed, that might be one of the toughest to get through. So I I do ask for your prayers and for your effective prayers. They've always been effective. I also want you to know that whenever there are adversities, and this is one of the great lessons in Romans. Paul says we glory, boast in our adversities. There was an old Stoic notion and a notion among the biggest braggarts in the world, which were the Romans, that if someone else is going through adversity, it's because the gods were angry with them. And Paul kind of flipped the script on that and said, if you're going through adversities, it's precisely because you're suffering with Christ and you should glory in those adversities. And whenever, as a pastor, I go through adversities, I want you to know that it's never without a mindfulness that at the same time you are going through your own adversities. They may not be as publicized. They may not be as visible. They may not be as exposed. But that that is one of the great comforts I have is I'm aware of your adversities. And when we go through adversity and when we accept the comfort and consolation of others, We should never focus on our own selves. There's nothing worse than a self-indulgent grief. Grieving not because you miss somebody, but because you want to grieve and you want others to see you grieve and you're on the showcase and you're you're in the spotlight. But we should, and also when a communicator of the word suffers or goes through any kind of adversity and that there's all kinds of those today paul said in ephesians 3 13 not for the congregation to faint at his adversities not to become discouraged at the adversities that 
spiritual leaders must go through because they're all for you. That's the second thing I wanted you to know about adversities. Anyone's, anyone's that I go through are because of you. The benefits that come, the consolation that comes, the blessing that comes on the other side of adversity overflows to you. That's found in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. I know that there are those of you in this place right now that are suffering with unspoken adversities, unspoken pains, unspoken things. And I, I don't want you to ever forget that that consciousness is always there. Now, in my absence also, we will do what we usually do. We have three insufficient ministers will be speaking. And they're going to egg you on. There's two things I want to interpret. First of all, the phrase egg you on, what does that mean, egg me on? Well, I finally realized, and I read recently, that the egg is not an egg, but it's the tip of a spear. And the Roman soldiers would egg you on if you were a prisoner or if you were a soldier and you didn't really want to get in line. You didn't want to get in rank. You wanted to break ranks. You wanted to be your own person and all the rest of it. So they were, you were egged on. Here's you. And you're being egged on. Your eyes are wide open. You're not smiling. You're not smiling. And you have a hat on. So you're, there you are. They're going to egg you on. And I'm speaking of Brian and Craig and Amory. Three insufficient ministers. And so, like me, we are insufficient for these things. Who is sufficient for the message we have? Who is up to it? None of us. Second Corinthians 2.17 is veritably one of my mottos. <laughs> Who is sufficient for these things? But then, thank God, in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, right down the road, our sufficiency is of God. Our sufficiency, our competence to communicate, to counsel, to encourage, and you all have that. That's Romans fifteen fourteen. You all have that competence to encourage, to build up, to edify, to explain, to explicate doctrine, to lovingly encourage others. We're all insufficient. The message is so great that it would be the supreme arrogance to suppose that we were sufficient. And God himself, and I'm going to be speaking on this today, and I want you to understand that you can know him and understand him, but he's still incomprehensible. You can know and understand God through his acts, through what he's done, what he does, but he's incomprehensible, meaning we will never comprehend him in his totality. So the question is, will we always be in a learning mode about who he is? And will we never, ever comprehend entirely who he is? The answer to that is, no, we will never comprehend totally. Although there will be a sense in the beatific vision when we see him, that we will be like him. I better get this thing off there. You're being serious and you got this cartoon up here. Um, so, all of that said, 
I think we'll begin with Jeremiah 9.23 today. Jeremiah 9.23. I'm always aware that when I do go away or have to go away, and this only for a couple of weeks this time, I'll see you on the other, other end of January, that the place is being left in the capable hands of our deacon board and staff, as well as the pastoral care of the communicators that we select and as well as others who have shepherd hearts and men and women who have pastoral hearts toward the congregation. So I'll be praying for you. And I hope you're praying for me, especially on January 10th, not for me, but for the Lord Jesus Christ to be glorified and honored and for his all-sufficiency to be seen by the living who will be receiving that message. That's the whole thing right there, that Christ will be magnified, the Father glorified, and the Spirit free to be demonstrative of the glorious gospel, the gospel of the glory of our Christ. Today I'm going to speak on something. This is the 18th message with Revelation, 18 messages completed, a, an introduction to Revelation. This is the 18th message in Romans, the epistle. We preceded this by 109 hours, which I call Better Call Paul, which serves as a kind of lengthy introduction to Romans, and it's a dialectical one, meaning there are some of the points I made there that I'm going to go back and explain or argue with. It's a dialect. It's going to be a dialectical theology, a dialectical study. That's one of the nine theological functional specialties. So today, the theology of Romans. In one sense, this will be the tip of the spear for Romans, and it will be one of the most important, if not the most important, message of Romans so far. And again, Jeremiah 9.23 which in the Septuagint translation is 9.22. So if you have the Greek text of the Old Testament, which is what I go by, it's Jeremiah 9.22. And I want you to understand this, because when it comes down to distillation, I'm convinced that Paul was more than we can imagine profoundly impacted, influenced, and carried along by the word that Yahweh spoke through his prophet Jeremiah in this passage. And that in one sense, and this is a theory of mine that I'm going to test throughout our study of Romans. In one sense, the epistle of Paul to the Romans is a distillation or a fanning out of this distilled passage. It's a fanning out of what Yahweh said through his prophet Jeremiah to all of us. So, Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word today, which is our constant prayer in Jesus' name. The nature of God is not abstractly characterized by his attributes. Notice that shocking statement. I'm quoting Ernst Kasemann, who wrote, fantastic commentary on Romans in 1980, who was the mentor of men like Jürgen Moltmann 
and Louis J. Martin, great theologians of our own time. The nature of God is not abstractly characterized by his attributes, but by the miraculous power which creates and maintains eschatological salvation. I'm going to say that again. I'm not quoting Cosman to start before the scripture because his quote is more important than the scripture, but because he sums up much of the scripture, including the essence of Romans, the epistle, the nature of God is not abstractly characterized by his attributes, but by the miraculous power, which creates and maintains eschatological salvation. So I quote Kazaman here first, not because his statement is more important than scripture, but because it sums up much of the scripture and is a core principle of theology. It's a revolutionary principle of a theology that's being formed now. And I think it goes way beyond traditional constraints of the past. It's a core principle of theology, especially the theology, if you want, the Godology, which is theology, the word about God in Romans. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel of Christ, it says, and the last word is Christ, not gospel. Christ is the power of God for salvation. I know this because 1 Corinthians one twenty four says Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. So let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. And neither let the rich man boast in his riches. Oh, the depth of the riches of the saving wisdom of God. His ways are incomprehensible. They're past finding out. They'll never be completely found out. His ways are past finding out. That's Romans 11.33, in case you're wondering. I'm kind of hunkered down in Romans. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16. Now, this is a radical revolution in theology because it's usual to simply list God's attributes. And the way you, you finally list all of God's attributes and then you have your list. And so God looks like he's got this impassable. That means he's way up there and he's not touchable by you or I. And he's impassive. He's not feeling anything. He has no passions. He's up there. He is love, but he's love up there. Impassive, not passionate, not really caring. He is love. That's an attribute. You can't know God by listing that as an attribute. God is righteous. Jesus said, O righteous Father, in his prayer. O righteous Father. But righteousness isn't some passive attribute you can approach, uh, attribute 
see, attribute, attribute to God. And he's up there and he's got all the righteousness. And he's right there seated. He's impassive and he's impassable. He doesn't pass anything along to us. You can't just list his attributes. That's not what theology is. One thing that is very clear in Romans is that God is totally other, capital O-T-H-E-R, all caps. God is totally other than the beings who constitute his creation. That's probably one of the first principles of theology. In fact, he's known for calling beings into existence that had no being before, no existence before. No other can have that attribute or that characteristic. You want to do attributes. And uh, he also raises the dead into life. Romans 4.17, a very central passage. The, the passages I quote today from Romans are worth looking up, meditating on before you go to sleep rather than watching a horror movie and not sleeping. The propensity of human beings to worship and to serve some aspect of the creation, some image of it, or to worship some self-conceived image of the deity rather than the creator himself is a sure sign of the radical, sinful condition of humankind. Idolatry is at the heart of it. It is clear evidence of sin's reign, and I capitalize sin there, S-I-N, sin's reign over humanity. So, the restoration of humanity from its slavery to sin and its inclination to idolatry amounts in great part to a rectification of the human relationship with God. Justification is a word you've almost got to put out of your thinking. And when it comes to Romans, rectification is the word because it means not only to declare right, but to make right, to make right. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, not just declared. It's not an imputation. We're talking about something much deeper here. The restoration of humanity from its slavery to sin and its predilection for idolatry amounts to a rectification of the human relationship to God. It is a rectification that comes through the righteousness of God who created the heavens and the earth. God's righteousness is enacted Exhibited, demonstrated. It's a dynamic, not a static attribute. When I say that this year is the year of being in love, love is not a static attribute. It's a dynamic state. It's a dynamic thing. The love is the love of God that the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts. 
The love with which we love is God's love. Does not come from us. It is not done by us. But it is God who is in you willing and working of his own good pleasure. This rectification that is called dikaio in the scripture. It comes through the righteousness of God who created the heavens and the earth. Is God's righteousness as enacted in Jesus Christ, whom he demonstrated to be and exhibited to be and declared to be his son with power by raising him from the dead. He who calls things into existence that had no being before has raised a dead man from the dead into an inexplicably glorious life that we all participate in and will in glory. A person I know who I recently talked about the Bible with says, don't use that word glory. I don't know, like the word glory. And I said, well, let's do it this way then. To be in glory is to be in your true and real humanity fully and completely. Then they got it. That which theology has traditionally termed as the attributes of God named righteousness and love are considered in Romans not as passive attributes of an impassable and impassive deity, but as salvific actions taken by the God of all grace, the God who saves. And I'm saying that all in advance of reading the book by Congdon, C-O-N-G-D-O-N, which I'm taking with me to Florida, The God Who Saves. I haven't read the book. So don't say you got that from him if you read the book. This is in advance of reading the book, The God Who Saves. I think I know what's in there, in other words. But I think I know what's in the Bible a little bit. Not as much as I ought to. So that which theology is traditionally termed as the attributes of God. Now, theologians interpret scripture by their theology. So this is kind of disastrous. That's what which theology is traditionally termed as the attributes of God named righteousness and love are considered in Romans as salvific actions taken by the God who saves. He saves because that's not just what he does. It's who he is. His name shall be called Yeshua which means Yahweh saves. It reminds me of a restroom I was in, a sarcastic response to that. We, in fact, the commune I lived in in Burlington, Vermont, for a little while said, Jesus saves on the roof. And... I was in a restroom at the University of Vermont once. Restrooms, by the way, are very important places. Because if you're ever arrogant, 
you're reminded of who you are. But someone wrote Jesus saves on the top of the stall, and someone else wrote Moses invests underneath. That was, anyways. But we know Jesus saves has nothing to do with the monetary value. We know that he saves because he's God who saves. Like the commercial says, it's what he does. But beyond what the commercial says, it's who he is. And his will, I just woke Will up in the back row. No, he was already alert. His will is universal mercy. So, he's the God who saves, or the God who, in Cosman's well-chosen words, creates and maintains eschatological salvation. Eschatological salvation means it's the last thing God does forever. He does it forever, and he does it for all. Not only is salvation created and maintained by miraculous power, I'll go a little bit beyond Mr. Cosman, and he would expect anyone to. Not only is salvation created and maintained by miraculous power, as he said it, but it is initiated and completed by divine acts of love and righteousness in Christ Jesus. Coming to understand and to know this incomprehensible God, and that's one of those paradoxes of Scripture, To know and understand the incomprehensible God is like coming to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When our loved ones depart from this life, we know that they now know a knowledge that surpasses knowledge here. And at God's right hand, they are experiencing pleasures forevermore joys that don't ever stop they're never interrupted by fellow sinners and they have a joy that as Jesus said you shall have a joy that no man can take away no human action can take away no politician can take it away you're a pathetic person if you complain about politicians because you are revealing that they are your intended source of happiness and they haven't met it. What a pathetic person you are. What a pathetic person you are. See that DVD? Pointing at myself. Because I do. I gritch about a lot of things, but God has to say, where's your happiness lie? Who are you expecting to make you happy? Oh. Only God can say you're pathetic and it's done with such love that you smile. The righteous will smite me. It'll be a kindness. But sometimes someone may kiss you and it'll be a deceitful kiss like Judas's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Coming to understand and know this incomprehensible God is the theological objective of God's rectification of the ungodly. Why does God rectify the ungodly? That's another thing he does. He rectifies the ungodly. There's no other kind of person that he rectifies except the ungodly. Why? So that we can come to know and 
understand and know. To understand and know. I want you to get those two things in your mind because our goal is understanding. Our task is interpretation in Romans. For God demonstrated his love. Now here gets basic. God demonstrated his love in Romans 5.8 just as he demonstrated his righteousness in Romans 3.25 and 26. And his justice. People love that attribute because they like to connect justice with damnation. And God never connects justice with damnation. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. God connects justice with salvation. He's the God who saves. And his judgments, well, they're way past figuring out because his judgments Contrary to the theologians and the preachers of our time, his judgments are all salvific with a view to salvation. And right at the heart of the wrath of God is his saving purpose. God always rejects in order to elect, but he never elects in order to reject. He always judges in order to save, but he doesn't save in order to condemn. He condemns in order to rectify He never rectifies with an intention to condemn. If you get those principles down, you'll understand Romans 9 instead of becoming a Calvinist and dropping the ball. And so, for God demonstrated his love just as he demonstrated his righteousness and his justice by justifying, and again, rectifying is a better term For dikaiao, the Greek term dikaiao, D-I-K-A-I-O, micron O, omega O, two O's, dikaiao, accent there, D-I-K-A-I-O-O. That's a key word in Romans. Justify is not the better rendering. Rectify is. He rectifies the ungodly, Romans 4.5 and 4.25, and that's everybody eventually. Now, this does not mean that we cannot say that God has attributes. It means that God does not have attributes like a thing would have a characteristic or a created being has attributes or characteristics. He is what he is in act is what I'm telling you. He is what he is in act. Active act rather than passive attribute. God is what he is in active act rather than in passive attribute. This is very encouraging to me because I'm not prone to activism. I'm not even prone to action. You say that means you're lazy. Probably. But I am prone to know the God who acts and therefore I'm content to rest in him and in his power. More and more. Which kind of makes me more active than I ever thought I'd be in my 40s. I mean, I never thought by the time I reached 40 like I did last week that I'd be this active in my mind, my imagination, my study and teaching. And running up hills in Oakmont with three degree weather, I love it. With weights, it's wonderful. I never thought I'd be that active being 40 now. Well, I'll admit it, 41. So... 
Listen carefully to these words, and I'm going to close pretty soon. Before 1 o'clock, I guarantee you. I'm just letting these stuff, these things digest so far. God is what he is more an act than an attribute. He is distinguished absolutely from the creature by his acts and his ways. And his thoughts for that matter. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says God. They're as high as the heaven is above the earth. They're infinitely distinguished from what you would think and what I would think. So we ought to be constantly surprised. What should be attributed to him, if you want to attribute something to God, attribute glory to him. Honor, praise, thanksgiving, gratitude. For what he is, as the God who saves and who maintains salvation for all of his creatures, especially human beings. Go figure. In fact, among the things that are attributed to him in Scripture or ascribed to him is salvation, all caps. Genesis 49.18, for example. 1 Samuel 2.1, for example. Psalm 37.39, for example. And as Psalm 68, 19 says, God is our salvation. In Psalm 85, 4, he is called God of our salvation. In Isaiah 52, 10, it says, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And then there's also that pesky verse that keeps showing up and keeps popping up in my consciousness, Isaiah 40 in verse 5, which is echoed in Luke 3, 6, which says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And see, according to Mr. Gingrich, not Newt, but the other one, the one that wrote a lexicon, means experience. All flesh, that's Isaiah 40 in verse 5. You're scrambling to find it, aren't you? Echoed in Luke 3, 6. It always astonished me, and when I say always, I mean now for a month or two, (laughs) that people can read the rich man and Lazarus and rich man in hell, burning in hell forever, after they've read the first part of Luke, which says all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord, and that this little infant that Simeon holds in the temple is the salvation of all. How can Luke, who already said emphatically in his opening words that all flesh will be saved, mean that some will be burning in hell forever with an eternal gulf fix between them and the saved? Or is that a parable? It's terrible what men have done to parables. It's turned God into the worst kind of Nazi. I mean, the Nazis had their concentration camps, but God has his eternal one. So then... It's time to get an understanding of what his holiness means. 
In Isaiah 52.10, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. How about Revelation 19.1? Testifies this, salvation and power and glory belong to our God. That's Revelation 19.1. In Romans 1.16, the gospel of Christ, where Christ himself is the power of God for salvation. So, we should already be familiar with John 3, 16 to 17 and never distinguish the two or disengage the two. They're in tandem. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. We should also be familiar With the declaration that God demonstrates his love, which is the activity of his essence. That's my definition. In that while we were still sinners, and that means while we were still radically and culpably, responsibly evildoers. That's what sinners means. Hamartoloi, that's a huge word. It means radically hostile to God with no possibility of extracting ourselves from that. While we were there, Christ died for our sins. Want to talk about love? Want to write about it? So we should all be familiar that God demonstrates his love, the activity of his essence, and that while we were still sinners, and that's God seeing the whole human race at once, Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly, nobody else. He died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. He rectifies the ungodly, nobody else. Romans 4, 5. He was delivered over for our sins. That's the sins of the whole world. He was resurrected for our justification. That's the rectification of the whole world. Now, there's a reason why Paul does this. As we'll see more and more as this, I'm so excited about Romans more than any other thing I've ever taught in my life. We ought to be familiar with Psalm 22.1. Because it's a psalm that begins with the Messiah's cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We're familiar with that. We ought to be familiar with the other end of that psalm. 22:31 in which the scripture says they will come speaking of future preachers men and women both all of us together they will come and announce to a people yet to be born about his righteousness god's righteousness in messiah who was abandoned and entered into god forsakenness for us and then was raised from the dead what does it say? Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one, in the English translation. They will proclaim to a people yet to be born about God's righteousness. And then it says what he has done. What he has done. God's righteousness, not his attribute way up there. God's righteousness, what he has done. When he was done, he cried through the mouth of his son. And his son cried 
as one with his father. Tetelestai. It's finished. You saw this in Better Call Paul, which in some ways acts as a kind of dialectical introduction to Romans epistle. We're going to see it more clearly in the study of Romans. As Romans 15.21 says, which cites Isaiah 52.15, Romans 15.21 cites, quotes, Isaiah 52.15, and says this, But as it is written, those who had no report of him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. God's righteousness is what he has done. What has he done? He's created and he now maintains eschatological salvation. What he has done is the enactment of divine love in divine power. Let me say this. This is my own theological principle. If I ever wrote a systematic theology, I'd start with a theology kind of like what I'm doing today. What he, God, has done is the enactment of divine love in divine power for the restoration of all things, the redemption of all creation, and the rectification of all the ungodly. And he has done this nowhere else but in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we do not know and understand God in his so-called attributes. So you can make your little list of attributes if you wish. But you'll never know God by all those. You'll just look at them and say, hmm. Pastor Brown, there's your lead in. Hmm. We know and understand him in his acts. And he has spoken to us. That's an act in his son in these last days. In his unique son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this is particularly important in Romans. And if you don't get this message today, you won't get Romans. This is particularly important in Romans because a key word in that apostolic epistle to us today is righteousness. It's dikaiosune. The noun form of this verb, dikaiosune. This is more important than anything you could ever imagine. Even if you think what's important is what you wear or what you put on. There are millions of people today that are concerned with the clothes they put on that will be in fashion and fail to recognize that they're so far out of fashion because they haven't put on the new man. The new person, the new individual that's in vogue in this age in which God has invaded the evil age and created a new man, a new person. So they got on all the right attitudes, all the right dispositions, and all the right outward clothing that fits the moment, which will change by next week. But they'll go with the times. But they've missed the whole eternal purpose of God for their lives because they still have on the old clothes of the old person who's not interested in this message. They're interested in the next post they can make. 
They're not interested in this message. They're interested in how they're perceived by their sin-filled peers. Now, so this is what I'm saying. This is important. This word, dikaiosune, is more important than any other word that you'll see today. Dikaiosune. D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune. Keyword in Romans. What's it mean? The catchphrase is the, the righteousness of God. It's familiar to us, of course, too, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Is that familiar to you? Shouldn't be too familiar, I'll tell you that. Hopefully, this is not too familiar. Because in that declaration, there's more than we can handle of insight into the knowledge of the true God. So when we memorize verses, we better know there's too much in that verse that we think we know that we could ever handle. That keeps me going. Remember our task in Romans, the epistle together, it's a collaborative task. It's interpretation. Our goal is understanding both our task and our goal are not in the realm of our competence. We're not sufficient for them. Both our task and our goal in life are not in the realm of our competence. God is our sufficiency. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through him, the spirit of Christ who strengthens me. Our competence is of God just as our salvation. Why do we think that salvation is the work of God, but then we can be competent for our Christian living? We're not. How can I think that salvation is from God and I have really nothing to do with it, but that my preaching is of my own ability and self-sufficiency and preaching and teaching and communication skills? It's not. The critical key for the preacher and for the Christian, for that matter, is to realize that we're not sufficient. We're not competent for this life in ourselves. Understanding and knowing him is something only he can bring about. Understanding and knowing him is something only he can bring about. Blaise Pascal said, quoting God, take comfort. You wouldn't be seeking me if you had not always already found me. I'm improving on, dare I say it? Improving on Blaise Pascal in his writing Pensee or Thoughts by saying that God would say this rather. Take comfort for if you're seeking me, it is only because I have already found you. God will fan the spark of your desire to know him. If you really want to know him, you know what your biggest fear is? That you'll lose the desire to know him. But guess what? It's a false fear. If you desire to know him, God is in the business of fanning that spark into a flame. So that you'll say with Paul that I may know him. That I may know him. 
power of his resurrection that I may be conformed into his dying in this life not into his resurrection first into his dying first by adversities I'll glory in adversities because they're conforming me into the enactment of Christ dying so that I can attain to that resurrection ex anastasis out from the dead in some meaningful measure in this life Philippians 3.11. He will fan that desire in you. You say, but it's only a spark. Of course it is. He'll fan it into a flame. And guess what the flame will be? It'll be a fire that cannot be quenched. But I thought that was hell. No, that's God. And you know what it'll become, that little desire in you? I was looking at shows this week, the Christmas shows, and I I said, these are like a worm boring into my brain. And Christmas, mindless Christmas, if I hear that song again, and I I have, and it makes me, it's really cold outside. You know what? We know it's cold outside, and we know you want her to stay with you. But, I'm saying that to say this. Jesus warned of a place where the worm never dies. Let me tell you something. The worm that bores himself into your brain, into the soil of your soul, that's the desire to know God, is never going to die. How about that one? That's called audacity. He will fan that flame, that spark into a flame in your soul, a flame that can't be quenched. And he will make that desire like a worm that does not die, boring into the soil of your soul. The theology of Romans is the most important thing. Romans is theocentric, centered in God. Romans is Christocentric, centered in Christ. And it is soteriocentric, which is the word that theologians are going to be using more and more. Soteriocentric. Salvation-centered. But I say it's soteriocentric because it's theocentric, because God is our salvation. Because it's Christocentric, because Christ is the power of salvation. You say, where, where does Jeremiah fit in? I'm going to close with Jeremiah that I told you to open with. But here's a point that I want you to understand too. Our salvation and the salvation of all human beings is about the faithfulness of God enacted in Christ. And our faith, listen carefully, our faith is a participation in that faithfulness, which is God's faithfulness in Christ's faithfulness in That's what it means. In it, the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God, the saving act of God, which goes from faithfulness, God's in Christ, to faithfulness, Christ's and God's in us. Our faith is a participation in God's faithfulness in Christ's faithfulness. That's how we become partakers of the divine nature. Second which is a divine dynamic. Second Peter 1.4. Finally, you say, at last, well, finally. Let me ask you, how long was the latest Star Wars movie? Did you pay attention to the whole thing? 
Well, I'll be damned. No, I won't. Okay. Now, that's one of my new favorite sayings I say to myself. Well, I'll be damned. No, I won't. (laughs) Our salvation. (laughs) Oh, man. And the salvation of all human beings is about the faithfulness of God enacted in Jesus Christ's faithfulness to the extent of death on a cross. Our faith is a participation in that faithfulness as a production of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't have anything to do with you and me. So finally, this, you say, let's get practical. Well, there's a practical, essential purpose to Paul in writing Romans. You know what he's trying to get the Romans to understand by all this? You've got nothing to brag about. You've got nothing to boast about against your brother, your sister, that other person. In connection with this, Robert Jewett wrote this, to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ is to abandon all prior human claims of virtue, status, or superiority. You know how anxious men get, especially when they get older and they get in their 50s and their 60s, and that's why David had to go out and have an affair. You know why they get anxious and nervous in their so-called midlife crisis? Because they're, all their lives they boasted about their strength, which seems to be waning. They boast about their wealth, which is insecure. And they both about, boast about their wisdom, which they found fails over and over again. So they have to reiterate how wise they are, how much they own, how their kids are succeeding, how this is happening, how their house is bigger than it was. They have to do all that stuff because they are losers in the most supreme degree of being losers. They're boasting in themselves and they're realizing the fallacy of that whole philosophy of life. So I love what Jewett said. To boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ is to abandon all prior human claims of virtue, status, or superiority. We used to, in North Bennington, we used to look down on the kids from Shaftesbury. One of my friends, Chucky Washburn, lived in a tar paper shack and he killed squirrels so his family could eat. So subtly, I loved him, but subtly I'm thinking, well, I'm from a higher class. We pay $35 a month for rent and my dad shovels coal into a stove to heat our rented house. We have a house. He's got a tar paper shack. And then we went to high school in Bennington, not North Bennington, Bennington. And the Bennington kids used to think we were the hicks. And the whole thing is just boasting in what you have. Boasting in your wisdom, boasting in your strength, boasting in your wealth. Wealth, schmelt. I heard a man recently boast that he made billions and billions of dollars. I don't give a damn and it doesn't mean anything. It's paper. It goes poof. Now, I will close, I promise, right now. Here it is. Jesus Christ is the righteous one of Romans 1.17 who lives by his faithfulness. He lives in resurrection because of his faithfulness to the Father to the extent of crucifixion and then he's raised. The righteous one who lives by faith is Jesus Christ who lives 
as a reward for his faithfulness to the Father. Guess whose faithfulness I live by? Not mine. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. Loved me. That's an active verb. Gave himself for me. That's the activity of love. I don't frustrate the grace of God by thinking my faith is from me. How'd you like that one? Because that would make my faith a work. And if I'm justified by works, then Christ died for nothing. And let's go home and forget about it and go on social media and live there because that's what's really useful. So I will read Romans or Jeremiah 9 just to show you. There's a passage in the prophets. I'm going to read it. Just see what pops to you. I have so much more to say today, but I'm going to hold it for the other end of January. Jeremiah 9, 23 in your English Bibles. It's 22 in my Greek text. It says, this is what the Lord says. If anything God is saying right now to us, right here in this place today, and to America, and to our generations. Oh, there's so much hate today. Well, who brought that in? I've seen a lot of hate in demonstrations against hate. God is speaking a word, not to some, but to all. Not to some races, but to all races. Not to some lives that matter, but to all lives that matter infinitely to him. He's saying this right now. Right here, to this generation. This is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast. The word kakaomai, key word in Romans. The wise person must not boast in his wisdom. And that's to that I reply, Romans 11.33. Oh, the wisdom of God. The salvific wisdom of God. The strong person. Boston strong. Pittsburgh strong. 12 strong, I'm strong. No, you're nothing. The strong man, the strong person, must not boast in his strength. The rich person must not boast in his wealth. Oh, the wealth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's something to boast about. I got tracks to run on for when I come back. It's right here. Instead. Thank God there's an option. That just about took all the wind out of my sails. I'm just about three sheets to the wind. Three sheets that have no wind. I'm done now. That's all I did my whole life was boasting my strength, my wisdom, and my riches. I'm done. Good. Because guess what? Here's the option. God's still speaking. Yahweh's still speaking over this generation. Instead, if someone boasts, you got to brag. And we do. We're human. We got to brag. If someone has to boast or have pride in something, it can't be NBHS, North Bennington High School. NBHS, we adore thee and we love thy name. What? I sang that once. You got to boast in something. Not your alma mater. What does he say? Instead, if someone boasts, let him boast that he understands. What's our goal in Romans? To understand. And that he knows. 
he or she knows. If someone boasts, let her boast in that she understands and realizes, knows that I am the Lord who exercises mercy. I don't have mercy as an attribute. I do it. I exercise mercy. Poion eleos. Poion eleos. I do mercy. What do you do, Father? I do mercy. Who do you do mercy to? Just about everybody. And by just about, I mean everybody. Who exercises mercy and righteousness. He does, he isn't righteousness as an attribute. He does it. And what is it? It's righteousness is the saving act of God in Christ. You ought to rejoice. I brag. I know this God to that measure. I know he's a God who saves. I can boast about that all day long. I can boast about his wisdom who is Christ. I can boast about his riches in Christ Jesus. I can boast all day about his strength by which I am strengthened and you are to be strengthened by my gospel, Paul said. In Romans 16, 26. But look what he goes on to say. I exercise mercy and judgment and righteousness. Judgment here is a saving judgment. It's mercy rejoicing over judgment. It's a judgment that arises from his mercy. He mentions mercy first, then judgment to show that he exercises his judgment in mercy. His judgment is mercy. His will is mercy. His plan is to sum up everything in Christ. So I, that you know and understand that I am the Lord who exercises mercy and judgment and righteousness, where? On the earth. That's what we would call a global initiative. In the earth means in the whole, in earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed. Let your kingdom come, Father. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think the Lord's prayer will be answered? In all the earth. Because these things constitute my will. Or if you want to say it this way, these are the things that I'm excited about. When you know someone as a friend, you share what you're excited about. God's excited about the exercise of universal mercy. God's excited about judgments that are salvific and that go beyond the human mind. God is excited about doing this kind of thing. Because they constitute my will, says the Lord. My intention. That's what's coming up next. The will, which is the mystery of his will which is what Romans is all about. All this universal talk, though, is so that we'll stop boasting about the wrong things because the secret of life, and we're never going to have the happiness that we seek in this life because this life isn't for happiness. This life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That means this life is a cruciform existence, which means we're not always skipping around like calves from a stall. That'll happen in the future. We can have happiness in this life, but this life won't give us happiness. And so I'm just telling you that so that you won't be disappointed. But there's a joy that's unspeakable that undergirds our living. There is a joy in adversity. There's a bragging and a boasting that even holds up, especially holds up right in the midst of adversity. 
That's what Romans is about. And in 46.10 of Isaiah, we are assured that God will accomplish all his will. Thank you, Father, for this word, which I can say is a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement. And pardon me, Father, if I spoke loudly as I was speaking for you, but I was doing it for emphasis, as you know. And we thank you, Father, for this time together today. May it be profitable beyond this time. May it be profitable even to eternity, the eternity that tells all, the eternity that tells all.